Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. I have about, let's say, 40 minutes, and I I, want to today talk about what's the Bible for, and uh, I'm going to do my best to uh, explain what I think the Bible's for. I'm also going to define what the Bible is, and then uh, I want to talk about what the role of Scripture is in the life of a Christian, Uh, and I'm going to do my best. We're on our Thoughts and Things series. And we, we've talked about at length how your thoughts become things, right? Uh, we don't have, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how we don't have a behavior problem. We got a thinking problem. Uh, we talked about truth and lies, and lies and how our life is engulfed in cosmic warfare a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we talked about our feels. Everyone say our feels. Uh, we don't have a feeling disorder. We don't have a feeling problem. We have a thinking problem. So the way you feel today, the way we feel today is the way we think, And so we talked a little bit about that last week. So today, I want to talk about how Scripture is essential for the transformation of our thoughts. The question that we have to answer, I'm just going to get into it, okay? Uh, Does the Bible speak, this is the question that a lot of people have, does the Bible speak to the dominant issues of our day? Uh, I just read, um, I think it was the end of last year, 2018, a bunch of researchers, uh, they wanted to kind of map out the political landscape. And so uh, they spent like a year or two trying to figure out where people on the spectrum of politics, where they stood. And they came up with this phrase called the exhausted majority. And it's fascinating. The exhausted majority are not just worn out by fake news and the president or the Dems or the Republicans or whatever. This exhausted majority they came to realize through research are worn out by chasing the American dream. For example, at Christmas this last year, I, I, I thought it was funny, uh, but there was a Lexus commercial. If you have a Lexus, that's great. If you have a Mercedes, that, that we're not talking about that, but there was a Lexus commercial. And Christmas morning, a couple came out, and in their front driveway, they had two, Lex, two new, brand new cars with a bow on top. And I told my wife, like, that will probably never happen to us. Right? It's kind of like, Man, that's kind of the American dream. And people are, they're, they're exhausted. They're worn out by chasing the American dream. Most of us in this room, again, if you have a Lexus, that's great. But we're not going to wake up on Christmas morning with a Lexus in our driveway, right? So does Scripture, though, speak to our exhaustion? Does the Bible speak to our brokenness? Can the Bible speak to our issues on a macro level and on a personal level. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but this year we have a major mental health crisis or public health crisis in our nation. 50,000, almost 50,000 people in 2018 took their lives. The question that we have to ask is, can God's word speak to depression? Can God's word speak to mental illness? The second Uh, public health crisis right now is loneliness. It goes suicide, then loneliness. Can God's Word speak to that? Our modern contemporary world has offered many challenges. I'm going to get into it. I might get a little feisty, if that's okay, but I promise I'm not going to go old man wild on you. 
Funny story, though. I think I am getting, obviously, we're all getting older. But a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had a date night, to God be the glory. And I was still pretty young, but we went to Albertsons, the big one. We're never stinking going to go to that Albertsons again. There's way too many people. I was complaining the whole time. I was tired, right? I was worn out by going to that Albertsons. We sat down. We got a salad. My wife convinced me to get a salad. So we ate salad, and we talked about the weather. This is our date night. And then we decided to go to Target, and I got socks. Again, to God be the glory. I I guarantee you what will change your life if you get a pair of champion socks and just put it on your face. Just rub it all over your face. And how many of you, come on, how many like knew a new pair of socks? Is there anything better? I don't know. There's really not much. And then after that, we got Drano, and then we, uh, we went home, and I was thoroughly happy. I thought that was a successful date night, right? So I don't know why I got under that. What, I'm, what I wanted to say is that um, I'm going to talk about some observations about our cultural moment, um, but I'm not going to go old man wild on you. I just want you to hear me. I'm going to say some things, and I'm going to be neutral about it, but there are some challenges that our modern contemporary world um, has offered us. For, for example, uh, we're reimagining identity. Uh, de- uh, identity for many people in our country is fluid. Uh, we're changing how our understanding, our perspective on, on personhood. Uh, we are talking about from everything from immigration, which is important, refugees, which is important, um, all the way to from New York City and legislating late-term abortion. And I've been thinking about this. We get the Me Too movement. We have Shades of Grey, which is crazy. It's the number one bestseller book uh, ever, I think, in the United States of America. We got a lot of issues, right, that we need to address. So can Jesus sort out all of this mess that we find ourselves in? Let me, let me sharpen that up. Uh, is Jesus, is the Bible, or can the Bible relate to, address, and speak to the rise of this unprecedented new world that we live in? I think we all would say yes. Wasn't intended to be rhetorical. I think we would say yes. God's word can address uh, the issues of our day. The problem is, is there's a lot of people in our world, they have a take. Everyone say a take. It's a secular take, and they're like, nah, God's word cannot address the issues in our life. Charles Taylor, I'm going to borrow a lot from Charles Taylor and uh, a, a pastor named John Tyson. But he describes the age in which we're living in as the age of authenticity. Uh, John Tyson uh, explains that the supreme value of this age of authenticity, the supreme value of our culture, or the secular mantra is being true to your authentic self. Now that's fine. I think, I think we all would agree that everyone in this room matters. Yourself matters. Right, you are made in the image of God, right? Right, you reflect the wisdom of God, his goodness. So we believe, and the Bible teaches, that every single person, doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter the choices that you've made, good or bad, you are made in the image of God, and your life matters. So authenticity, prima facie, is a good thing. The problem is is that uh, authenticity is, in this uh, culture that we're swimming in, um, has a kind of a more nefarious definition. For example, being true to your authentic self is set against all conformity 
to external authority. So if the state says something that goes against what you feel to be true about yourself, the state is inherently oppressive. Church says anything, God, the Bible, your mom, your dad, they say anything that's externally motivated because it's not true to your authentic self, you are to reject that. Eugene Peterson calls this the selfing of our lives. Not selfies, but the selfing of our lives. Thank you for that laugh, right? But the selfing of our lives is not just that we, oh, yeah, we want to be true to our authentic self. But the selfing of our lives is be true to your authentic self, and it's set against any conformity to any external norms. All external norms, in the words of one author, are inherently oppressive. This has led to uh, a shift in our understanding of power and authority. For a long time, this goes all the way back to West, uh, West John Wesley, and I've talked about this in brief before, but Wesley, John Wesley, came up with this quadrilateral of authority. And um, this quadrilateral, quadrilateral of authority has four aspects to it. So there are four ways to identify God's voice in our life. And we begin with the ultimate authority, and that is God's word. Like, that's, that's our starting point, right? So if we want to figure out God's will and God's purpose for our life, we begin with God's word. Then we uh, go to tradition. After we kind of get a sense of what God's word is speaking to, addressing, uh, we move into uh, tradition, which is church history. Uh, and then we move into below tradition is reason and good thinking, and then below that is experience. You need all four to help you identify God's Word. But according to uh, John Tyson, we have inverted this quadrilateral, quadrilateral of authority. So we no, we, we no longer begin with God's Word as the ultimate authority. We flipped it, right? So we start with personal experience, so personal experience is at the top, right? We've got to be true to our authentic self, right? We've got to figure ourselves out. We start there. Then we move into a more thoughtful approach to life and making decisions and trying to figure out meaning, et cetera. Then most of us are largely like unaware of church history and what St. Augustine said about this or um, what Aquinas said about this or what Luther said about this, et cetera. And then we try to move into Scripture and scripture for many people, even in the church, um, is a difficult thing for people to understand. Like the large story is lost on many people. Uh, for example, one example of this is, um, and we find this in the church, and I'm using this from John Tyson, um, is when we mention God's word. Like we say God's word says this. It's funny um, no one in this service ever does this, but the 5 o'clock struggles with this, and the, 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 uh, the 9 o'clock struggles with this. But when we say this is God's word, it's, it's, it's interesting. We, we really don't respond when the word of God is spoken. Like, it's, you know, we just kind of, and, and I'm, not, I'm not, hear me out. I'm neutral. I'm not placing any judgment on anyone. But our response, it's not cold, but it's like, oh, okay, okay, right. It's all right. It's God's word. But here's, check this out. But when someone either gets up on the mic or maybe you, you uh, during your week, you meet somebody and they say, hey, right, I had a personal time with Jesus. I was sipping on my coffee at Starbucks, right, listening to a little bit of Coldplay. And, um, 
and I had a 20-minute Devo time, right? And I started feeling the Holy Spirit speak to me. It's funny how people just kind of, they lean in. They're like, oh, tell me more, right? And there's, they're, they're more excited about that. Now, let me say this. Um, I believe that God can speak to you in your personal time, right? I believe the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, in a personal way, in our devotional life. All I'm saying is I think this is illustrative of this age of authenticity where we value our personal experience over and against God's word. So we lean in when, t- when someone tells us about what they feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, and you should. Hear me. You should. But why are we not leaning in when God's word is declared over our life? I'm going I'm to break, break the news to you. I find what God has said in his word more valuable than even what my father says over me. And I value my father. And how many of you love Pastor Ken Wilde? And God speaks to him, and I'm going to lean in, and we're going to honor everybody. Can I get an amen to that? Again, the point is, is that we value, it's our supreme value, is the experience of the authentic self. This works, this age of authenticity works with what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. So people today are no longer concerned about metaphysics. We don't care about God. We don't care about heaven. Am I getting too feisty? I feel feisty. I want, I, want, I want my voice to go a little bit deeper right now. I want to talk about smoke and mirrors, right? Some of you have no idea what that is. That's a joke between Shane and I. But people don't believe in God. or we don't, We're not bothered by the questions of God anymore. Heaven, like if you, if you were to go on a little evangelistic, um, I don't know, adventure downtown, people are no longer concerned about post-mortem existence, no longer concerned about the angels, whether there's an afterlife. They're only concerned about how God can bring personal fulfillment in their life. Uh, J.K. Smith calls this um, significance without transcendence. Like people, we just, man, we just want to have a good time. Like we live, we're driven by the immediate, the now. Like we just, man, thank God it's Friday, right? It's spring break, like sun's out, gun's out, right? We're just going to, we're going to live the dream. We're not going to worry about the future. We're just going to have a good time. We live in a constitutional republic. We got health care. We, we live in a great nation, whatever. We still have our issues, but we're just going to live for the now. This has led to, in the words of Charles Taylor, disenchantment. Our world is disenchanted, which essentially means we just assume that we live in a closed system. God doesn't really exist. If he does, he's not really involved in our lives. So we've taken God, the church, and the Bible, and we've moved them to the fringe. And Christians have gone along for the ride. I I, I didn't plan on saying this, but David Foster Wallace, he's an agnostic, and uh, he came up with a modern-day parable, really Jesus-like. He was at a commencement. It was actually his commencement speech. And speaking to a lot of college students. And this, and some of you have heard this parable before. It's a parable of two fish. One day two fish swim upstream and they see an older fish. And they stop and the older fish and these two fish start a conversation. The older fish then looks to the two younger fish and, and says, how's the water? The two fish kind of look at each other and they're like, huh? 
And they kind of swim up. They stop the conversation with the older fish. They swim upstream. And one of the fish turns to the other fish and says, what's water? Some of you don't even know, but you've been swimming in this age of authenticity. And you've been thinking that I can just, I can make it. I can have meaning. I can purpose. I can have significance by just coming to church on Sunday, but then living the way I want to live Monday through Friday. I'm... Am, am, I, am I too feisty? So this is the age of authenticity. It's, it's led to the rejection of external norms, the rejection of authority. We've taken God. We treated God like, and this is a character, as an old man, and we've shoved him in the attic and we've locked the door. That's a bad example. Whoever would do that is horrible. Can I get an amen? But essentially, that's what we've done. God, you have no business in our lives. Now, many of us as followers of Jesus, we have a good heart. But we live as if this is true. God only kind of does something on Sunday, but Monday through Friday, that's me time. Saturday, I can kind of do my thing, or, and maybe God can get my heart ready for Sunday, and then Sunday I'll give it to God, but then the rest of the week is, is for me. This disenchantment is, has led to uh, this divide. We've talked about this a lot, this divide between public faith and private faith. Uh, again, this is kind of this Epicurean uh, vision of life. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, it's an example of this divide between our public faith and private faith. It's found in this, uh, the words of one presidential candidate, and I think it was in 2016. I won't name him. He was asked the question, what do you believe um, about abortion? And this is what he said. Personally, I'm opposed to it because I'm a Catholic. But then he goes, publicly, I believe a woman has a right to choose. So we have the split level, and I probably offended everybody in this room, but I'm okay with that right now. But we have the split level way, a view of life. We try to compartmentalize life as if faith is private. Just check it out. I'm, I'm being neutral here. But essentially we've marginalized God, faith, scripture. It's like on the fringe. We've privatized it. It's, you know, following Jesus is about learning how to go to heaven, be a good person, turn into Rihanna's diamond, glow like a glow stick for the rest of eternity, right? Turn into a disembodied soul. But that's not what we find uh, in Scripture. Obviously, the pressure on this presidential candidate was enormous. He did not want to impose his private faith on the public domain. In other words, his fear, his concern was legislating morality. But here's the problem. Law is legislating morality. We have different takes. I get it. I respect every take. I'm not trying to turn this into a political speech here today. All I'm trying to say is that we have moved God to the margins. One, one book named Good Faith, I don't remember the, the name of the author, defined the number one way Christians are defined by the, by the world. And the number one way that non-church people think of church people is that they're irrelevant. It goes all the way back to the age of authenticity, right? To the rejection of external norms, to being disenchanted, to dividing our private faith from our public faith. In other words, what you believe as Christians has nothing to do with everyday life. 
God, Jesus might be like a therapeutic, I don't know, um, teacher, right, who went around 2,000 years ago and threw out some homespun parables and wisdom and talked about like farming and agriculture. But really when it comes down to it, many people don't believe that Jesus and what he's all about relates to our life, much less scripture. So the question is, is this, how does Jesus and Paul and the early church see the role of scripture in our lives? Is scripture irrelevant to the transformation of just some of our lives or all of our lives? We come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 17. I'm just going to read through this and comment really quick. Paul's writing to his apprentice, Timothy, and he says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So the early Christians, Paul, the early church, believed that they lived in the over, overlap, overlapping of two ages. So the old age, old creation was on its way out. New creation had been decisively launched through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus was the King of kings. Jesus was the Lord of lords. And they were living in the tension of these two overlapping ages. So essentially, when Paul tells Timothy, hey, in the last days, he's saying we are living at the beginning of the last days. And then in verse 2, he continues, says, for people will be lovers of self. We have a list here that's bracketed by a Greek word, actually three Greek words that simply is translated lovers of something. So here we have a triad of evil, and Paul tells us, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he continues, they'll be proud, they'll be arrogant, they'll be abusive, they'll be uh, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Verse 3, they'll be heartless unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Verse 4, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure. We have lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Feelings have been twisted out of shape, right? This is in the words of one author. People are misliving their lives. Verse 5, Paul continues, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. We will not be that church. Come on. Avoid such people. Verse 6, Paul continues, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. We continue in verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Verse 8, but just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So Paul is giving us an analysis of evil. An analysis of evil is simply this. When you suppress truth or where there's a decay of truth, you will have a decay or an erosion of feelings. You will have a decay of behavior. So Paul then continues in verse, I believe, 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
While evil people and imposters will go on for bad or worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, but as for you, everyone say, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul tells us what Scripture is. All Scripture, right? All Scripture. Like not just Psalms, not just your favorite passages, but even Leviticus. Lord have mercy. All Scripture is breathed out, your translation might read inspired, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we end here, verse 17. Do we have verse 17? That the man and woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, I'm going to answer the question really quick. What is, what is the Bible? What is it? It's pretty simple. Paul tells us that it is the breath of God, or it is inspired. Uh, Paul uses a rare word. It's only used here in this verse. It's theo. It's a compound Greek word, theonoustos. Theo obviously uh, refers to God, and noustos refers to breathing. So this compound word is translated God's breath. What is Scripture? It's God's breath. Neustos is found in many English words, which refers to breathing. We find pneumonia, which is an illness related to breathing. Neustos is also related to uh, several other Greek words, one in particular, which is pneuma, which means breath and spirit. We all know when you stop breathing, what happens to you? You die. So when you expire, or when we say someone expires, what does that mean? That means breath is leaving your body. When we say you're inspired, right, what are we saying? Breath is put into you. Have you ever been inspired before? Right? You, uh, some of you are inspired by Chopin, maybe Mozart, maybe Kanye. Maybe some of you grew up in the 80s, you were homeschooled, and you love Petra. Petra, white heart, totally inspired you. What does inspiration mean, right? In, in, when I'm inspired, I kind of like something happens to me. It's like I'm I get out of my circumstances, right? Somehow I lose a sense of myself and I'm caught up in something bigger than myself. To be inspired is to be encouraged. We all know that breath is fundamental or foundational for our existence. We go to Genesis chapter 1 and Paul is basically alluding to Genesis 1 verse 2. Before we know anything about who God is, the Hebrew reads, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. In the Hebrew, the Spirit of God reads Ruach Elohim. Ruach means breath. So before we know that God is love, and before we know that God wants to build this vast architecture of time and space, the first designation of who God is is that he's Ruach Elohim. In other words, he's the breathing God. Breathing God. In fact, we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We find that God takes Adam out of the dust and he breathes into him. He becomes a living being. And Adam exists because of the breath of God. But Adam and Eve don't just exist in this kind of pre 
um, fall world in some sort of constant state of inertia or inactivity, eating bonbons, kind of doing nothing, right, just kind of chilling. No, they're given the breath of God not just to exist, but the breath of God is essential for their vocation. So we know if you like, man, if you like zoology, we have Adam after he comes alive and this breath then enables him to work with the creator to bring the garden into flourishing. He's naming the animals, functioning as a zoologist. Now, if you like horticulture, if you're a green thumb, if you like gardening, the breath of God was essential for the, garden, for the cultivation and the flourishing of the garden. So breath, the breath of God is absolutely essential for life. But here's the thing. Um, Scripture is not just a compendium of rules or information or ancient history. Um, Scripture is not just an anthology of what people thought way back then. You know, we have Song of Solomon. Really, no one knows what to do with Song of Solomon. It's too erotic for some people, right? Is it allegorical? Is it literal? Some of you want to know right now. We're not going to get into that. But some of us just kind of assume that, oh yeah, okay, Scripture is an anthology of different works, maybe some narratives, some histories, some poems, some strange things, and they inspire me to become the best version of myself. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that, yeah, you'll be inspired when you read Scripture, but Scripture is not just some humans coming together and writing some really cool things about their perspective on God. No, Scripture, in fact, and this is the words of N.T. Wright, is the living breath of God himself. Scripture, in other words, is inherently alive. It radiates with the goodness of Jesus himself. It is the very life and breath of God. What is the Bible? It is the breath of God. Number two, what, what is the Bible for? Paul tells us that the Bible is useful for um, teaching, but he also tells us that uh, the Bible makes you wise for salvation. I used to, I, I platonized that. That was always confusing growing up. To, to platonize something simply means the, that salvation for me meant going off to heaven forgetting this world, just trying to figure out how to be a good person. Uh, but to make you wise for salvation is not simply going to heaven. To make you wise for salvation is to think in a new way. It's to, to be transformed, your worldview, your symbolic world. It's, it's your life to be turned right side up. To uh, be wise for salvation is all about identity. Can I get an amen to that? To be wise for salvation, in the words of one scholar, is to be rescued from the downward pole of dehumanized habits. In other words, to be wise for salvation is simply another way of saying that all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Not just some of life, but all of life. God's Word speaks to depression. In the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about that. God's Word speaks to and over anxiety. God speaks over death itself. God speaks to lust and sex and sexology. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about lust and the power of sex. 
God's word speaks about power and privilege. God speak, his word speaks about purpose and meaning and work and vocation. You are not called just to do nice things, right? What you do and your work matters. And when we go to scripture, God's word gives us our identity. We don't create our identity. God comes and gives us our identity. I don't know if you know this, but if you are in Christ, you are beloved. As you read scripture, we, we, we quoted this several times a couple weeks ago, but if you are in Christ, you are no longer located in your addiction, in your feels, in your sin, in your circumstances, in your troubles, in your difficulties. You are now located in the life of Jesus himself. Your life is bound up in the life of Jesus. You belong, belong to the family of God. As we mentioned before, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter what you've done in life, but because of the grace of Jesus worked out in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and through the launching of new creation in this brand new world where Jesus is now in charge of all things, you belong to the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen to that? This is good news. And when you read and you go through Corinthians, you start, you, you really begin to realize that you are like a portable temple. And in the ancient world, temples, the Bible says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And temples were places where heaven and earth overlapped. Many of us just think, oh, I'm a mom, or I'm a dad, or I'm this, or I'm that. No, no, no. When you come to scripture, you begin to realize that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And your life is a place where heaven and earth collides. So God's word speaks to all of life. God's word, scripture, the Bible is useful for teaching. It also is useful for challenging us. It's useful for rebuke. Have you ever been out of tune with the Holy Spirit before? I get this is going to totally date me, but uh, uh, we would, my family, we would go to Portland when we were younger. And uh, on our way back uh, to Boise, we loved listening to Trailblazer games. And back then, we just had a radio. Have you ever heard of it? Right? I remember the little, the, I mean, it's, it was difficult because we go through valleys and stuff. And, and so we would try to take the little knob and we'd try to find the right channel. But a lot of times, we just get static, right? So it took time. We had to tune into the right channel. Like many times, uh, we find ourselves out of tune. Many times we find in our relationship with God that our lives are um, in, a, in a state of static, right? But God comes as we go to scripture and he comes and he speaks to us. And sometimes he rebukes us. God's word is necessary for rebuke. Timothy Keller said, if your God never disagrees with you, you probably have the wrong God. And Lamont said this, if, if your God hates all the people you hate, then you probably have the wrong God. If God shares every single one of your opinions, you probably are not serving God. You're probably serving yourself. 
Blas Pascal, long 700 years ago, said, God created a male and female in the image of God, and they repaid him the compliment. We create God in our own image. We say this all the time, but there's no first and second opinions in Scripture. That's my one dad joke for today. God comes and it's through his word that he gets us into tune, sometimes through challenge and rebuke. God's word is also useful for correction. Uh, correction is all about renovation. God wants to renovate our, our lives, our thinking, our worldview, our feels, our habits, our behavior. And then finally, uh, God's word is useful to equip us for every good work. Every good work. A problem with this, and I, I used to read that, I'm like, okay, so God wants me to be a nice person? And sure, God wants us to be nice. But I used to think of like good works kind of like a Ned Flanders religious do-gooder, right? Always happy, kind of eccentric, personality squashed out of shape, kind of a weirdo. Many people think that Christianity and doing good works is kind of like that. But when Paul says scripture is useful and it's important to equip us for every good work. What is he saying, in the words of one scholar, is that God's word helps us to partner with God for the renewal of our lives, our neighborhoods, our cities, and our world. That's what good works are. It's through becoming a different kind of person through God's word that we reflect his wisdom and his love to the world. And when we do that, the world then is transformed. So what is the Bible? It's God-breathed, right? What's it for? It's for the transformation of our embodied lives. It helps us. It's useful to be all that God has called us to be. What's its role or what's its place? I want to answer this question as we close. Scripture. We can find this in Second Timothy, and we find this also in John chapter 8, is the centerpiece of Christian spiritual life. It's the absolute centerpiece of our life. In fact, John chapter 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said, this is verse 31, said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are what? You are truly my disciples. So this is kind of like syllogistic logic. You have an if-then clause. So Jesus said, if, how many of you want to know if you're a disciple of Jesus? He goes, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then he continues, verse 32, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, what? The truth will set you free. So not your authentic self will set you free. Right? Not your feels, not even a great spiritual encounter will set you free. And all those things are important. But what he says is the truth will set you free. But in fact, Jesus is saying it's not even the truth that will set you free. What is he saying? If you abide in my words, you shall then know the truth. Then you'll start to believe the truth. Then the truth will start acting on you. And then you'll be set free from those dehumanized habits that pull your personality out of shape and lead you into despair and depression, anxiety and fear and lust and greed and jealousy and comparison. 
So what's the key here? Jesus makes it very clear. If you want to be a community that embodies truth. How many of you want to be a part of a church that embodies truth? If you want to be a community that embodies truth, you have to learn the art of abiding in the words of Jesus. Like, how, like Chris, what is that? What does that even, what does that mean, right? I think the only way that I can describe it is I, when I was young, uh, my cousin from Seattle, he would come down um, during the summer and we'd take a week or two and we'd like just hang out, obviously it's vacation time. We play uh, Tecmo Bowl, uh, Nintendo. We listened to, I mean, he brought all his secular music and he corrupted my mind. <laughs> Stinking Judah. Uh, anyways, um, but we would have a good time and we'd play tennis and we were really competitive. And, uh, and then uh, his parents would come uh, back into town. And I remember, you probably have experienced this if your parents, you probably in, you have kids, um, you probably experienced this. Um, but uh, I remember every time uh, I would look to my dad and I would beg my dad for Judah to stay at least one more night, right? Judah would cry, you know, he's kind of like that. Um, and he would beg his parents, he would beg his parents uh, to stay in Boise for a little bit longer. The word abide actually remain, re- means to stay. It means to stay. It means to remain. It, it means don't, don't go from this place. Jesus is saying not abide in like some weird mystical sense. It just simply means to stay in God's word, to stay in the words of Jesus. So how, how do we do that? Can I just give you, as we close, can I give you just a few thoughts? The first thought, the way that we can become a, a community that embodies truth, the way in which we can uh, abide and stay in the words of Jesus, number one, it's absolutely essential that we learn to meditate on God's word every single day. Psalm 1 through, Psalm 1, 2 through 3 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Like what you think about shapes. Neuropsychologists will tell you, whatever flows through your brain has an effect on you. So what you meditate on will give the shape of your life, will influence, determine your behavior. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, very famous passage says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, everyone say think, think about these things. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. Think about these things. I, I like to say, I think we need, and we've lost, I'll say it this way, I think we've lost the art of discerning what we should give our attention to. We live in a world, right? We, I mean, there's just so much information. You got social media. I mean, you got TV commercials. You got, you got politicking. You have all this information out there, all these ideas that I think many times just simply don't deserve our attention. Some, man, I am feisty today. But some of you, you are watching TV programs that are messing with your mind 
and you're living in a way that is disgusting you and you don't want to live in this particular way and you wonder why you're living within this way or within this framework that is dehumanizing your mind and your relationships, it's because you're watching things and listening to things that you should not give your attention to. Think about these things. I think what happens is we'll wake up in the morning for some of us and we'll read um, our Bible, maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes, and then that's like the extent of our relationship with God's Word, and then we just kind of go through our day. To meditate on the Word of God is think, strategically think, and we're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks, strategically think about God's Word throughout your day. Number two, how do we abide in God's Word? Uh, We have to memorize Scripture. Psalm 119, I knew I wasn't going to get any amens on that one. But Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 10, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word. How do we store up the word of God? We do it by taking passages and we memorize them. We don't worry if these passages relate to us. We're storing up scripture. You know what I have found out, and I've learned this from a lot of different people, that um, the Bible is not designed for a quick fix. In fact, in fact um, like Dallas Willard calls it, people just assume when they go to the Bible, they're gonna get a word every minute from God, as if God's like some cosmic vending machine. So then we get really frustrated when we go with scripture and it doesn't relate to me. Age of authenticity, right? And many people get frustrated in their relationship with scripture and God because, well, scripture doesn't relate to me. Does it? Doesn't it? That's probably what I should said, right? It's funny, many people just work from an assumption that they know what's gonna make them happy. Like my kids, my kids think that the way to happiness and significance is for Kel and I to give them ice cream all day long and to let them like not go to sleep until four o'clock in the morning. My son Wesley wishes he could not go, doesn't, wishes he uh, couldn't go to school, right? Try to figure out, my brain's not working. Um, and then he just, he, his biggest obsession is video games. He just thinks if he could have a chocolate shake and he can play Lego, Ninjago, I don't even know what that is, right? And not read, he could be the most happy kid on the planet, right? He thinks he knows what he needs for happiness. I think a lot of us think the same way. We go to scripture and we're like, okay, God speak to me about my issues. And God's saying, okay, yeah, I'm gonna speak to those issues, but your issues are really not the issue. I gotta back you up. And I got to talk to you about some other things you're not thinking about. If you get this right, you're going to get this thing right. So I have found that when I wake up in the morning, sometimes, bam, God speaks to me when I open up scripture. Sometimes God speaks to me about something that doesn't even relate to my life in that moment until three weeks later because God's so good he sees the future 
something happens. And because I stored up. And I opened my heart to what God said three weeks earlier, I'm able to handle a difficulty or something that I had not seen coming. But this goes all the way back to, we gotta memorize scripture. We gotta store it up in our heart. Scripture is not designed, as I mentioned, for a quick fix. In fact, I think that I mentioned as Dr. Tim Mackey said, it's designed to hold its secrets. So you gotta, gotta be patient. Number three, we talked about meditating on God's word, memorizing God's word. I struggle with this because I, I know we just we think wrongly about this word, but we have to, if we want to be a community of truth, we have to cultivate the discipline of study. Love you guys. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, Paul says this. I'm almost done. I know I have to end. For through him, by this time, you ought to be teachers. However, because you've not cultivated, essentially, this is my paraphrase, the discipline of study, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's not just good enough to meditate. It's not just good enough to memorize. You have to study scripture. To cultivate the discipline of study behind all that is a desire to grow and to mature in Christ. Like, and I, I think we can all be honest. I think the American church, I get this from one scholar, pastor, is essentially living on baby food. We live, we live on the pastor's preaching. We live on the cliches. We try to fight the devil with that funny story that the pastor mentioned, right? And because we don't know scripture, Monday through Friday, we find our lives defeated by sin, the world, the flesh, whatever, the devil. But if we cultivate the discipline of study, which is not worried about, okay, does it apply to me? But I wanna know what God's word says you will be transformed into the image of God and you will live out the victory that Jesus has for you. Like, I, I just hope to God my 18-year-old infant, my, my infant boys, when they turn 18, man, if they're still living on organic goat's milk from Germany, I have not done my job. Right? There's a whole there's beautiful world of food out there. We have sushi, right? There is steak, Pastor Mark, there's bacon, right? For all of our angry vegans out there, I'm kidding, right? There is beets and there's lettuce and we should discipline, the, we, should, we should cultivate the discipline of study, which is a well-balanced diet. We shouldn't just live by what the preacher says. We shouldn't just live by maybe three or four passages. We shouldn't just live by a cliche or two. We shouldn't just live by a nice, cutesy story. We live by the Word of God. I can't wait. There's a day that's coming as I close that I'm going to preach on Lamentations and you guys are going to come up to me and say, Chris, you forgot to tell everybody that it's an acrostic. 
an acrostic, right? It, it corresponds, every line corresponds with 22 um, characters in the Hebrew alphabet. And right in the middle of Lamentations is the great declaration that even in judgment, even in difficulties, God's love is fresh and it's steadfast. I want somebody to rebuke me because they know the word of God. Kind of being facetious. I got a little carried away there, right there. Like I want you to go, I want you to understand Leviticus, right? It's a story. It's not just about a book of rules and law. I want you to know what Josephus said about this. I want you to know that it's not just an otherworldly book. I want you to know that it's all about God meeting us meeting us where we were at. I want you to know God's word. And the only way you can know that is through cultivating the discipline of study, asking yourself the right questions, asking questions. Finally, number four, so we close. We gotta meditate, we gotta memorize, we gotta study, and finally, we gotta put it into practice. Matthew 7, I'm done. Verse 24 says, everyone, Jesus says, then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, that, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We have a responsibility to put into practice into our live experience, the word of Jesus. When we do that, we abide. And when we abide, God transforms our life. Amen? So Chris, as I close, are you saying that I gotta become a scholar and I gotta understand Greek and all that kind of stuff? No, 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 no. I just, I wanna encourage you, start with meditating. Some of you haven't even meditated on scripture ever. That's fine. No judgment here, start there. Some of you have meditated, but you haven't really memorized. Start memorizing. Some of you have meditated, memorized scripture, but you haven't really studied. Get into study. Most of us, I think, can work on putting the words of Jesus into practice. I want us to be a community of truth. I want to embody God's truth. I want us to be set free so we can be who God has called us to be for the world, for this city. And everyone said,